Alberto from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifty goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another amazing athlete interview. I hope you recovered after Johnny Weir last week because we are getting into some more in-depth interviews with American athletes. We are going to be speaking to today, Aaron Aldrich Sheen, who is a very unique athlete, one that reached the peak of not one, but two sports. That is right. She is a two-sport athlete who has represented her country at pretty much the highest level you can do so. She is an Olympian in the sport of high jump. She represented the United States back in Sydney 2000 and then also represented Team USA in volleyball. Now, while she ultimately didn't quite make the Olympics for the 2004 Olympics, as we're going to hear in this interview, she very nearly did. Bronze medalist at the Pan Am Games and very much on the cusp of that Olympic team, an alternate for 2004 in Athens. So very much the peak of both her sports that she competed in. And it's a very unique chat learning about just how she got involved in two different sports, including one of the two, which essentially wasn't on her radar, was basically almost designated to her, and then she found herself going professional athlete in that. So Erin goes into all the detail about what other sports she played at, how they helped her in her journey in both volleyball and high jump, what moment in her childhood essentially put her on a path to become an Olympian. It's a fantastic story. And also just learning the challenges involved in both sports, how she can use certain skills in both of those sports, and overcoming a lot of hardship when it came to trying to get back to the Olympics after her Sydney 2000 appearance. And a very unique perspective on just how the later scheduling of the Sydney 2000 Olympics, of course, if you remember, they were held in September of 2000, when generally an Olympics is held in July, how that affected her performance. It's a very unique insight that we've actually never heard from an athlete before. So you're going to get a lot from this chat. And I'm very excited to bring it to you, and you're going to hear it right now. Here is our chat with American Olympian in the sport of high jump and American athlete in the sport of volleyball, Aaron Aldrich. Sheen. I love talking on this show to athletes who are very good at one sport, but what about an athlete who is very good at two sports? And that's exactly what we're going to be doing today. Erin Aldrich Sheen competed at an international level in both high jump and volleyball, representing the US at the Sydney 2000 Olympics in high jump, and then also representing the US in volleyball, where she actually went to the Pan Am Games and won a bronze medal back in 2003, and a plenty of Big career that we're going to talk about, all the achievements that she made, and I'm so excited to welcome her to the show right now. Erin, welcome to Off the Podium. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. It's it's exciting to chat to you because I always get excited to learn about how one athlete can get so good at one sport, let alone two. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story career that you've been able to do that. And we always like to touch on sort of when people get into the sports, often kids play lots of different sports, 
uh, when they're growing up. It seems like you just probably did the same error, and I'm guessing, and just couldn't pick between the two. Is that how it worked, how you ended up becoming so good at two different sports? You know, I think it probably overwhelmed my parents when I was registered for, like, eight sports at one time. I just loved being active, and I love sports. And I am, even today, just a huge advocate of multi-sport athletes. I just feel like there are so many great things to learn about playing more more, more than one sport or multiple sports. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just absolutely love sports in general and didn't find my final two sports that I went uh, professionally in until they were probably the last two sports that I picked up. Wow. Started in gymnastics, which, you know, you can't see my height, but we, we know that a six foot one or actually one meter 85 hmm. <laughs> human being should probably not be a gymnast, particularly <laughs> as a woman being that tall. Um, but yeah, I started out in gymnastics and it was really great for body awareness. And there are always these things that different sports can teach us. And, um, so then went on to softball, basketball, um, tennis. I played tennis very competitively for years and actually, um, could have played in college at a, you know, smaller school than, than what I went to college playing in volleyball and track. But, um, but yeah, I tried every sport and loved them all. Wow. So it was very hard to narrow it down. Well, I'm glad you went through some of those ones because I was going to ask you what were what were the eight sports. But and I, we're advocates for multi-sport uh, athletes on this one because we're big fans of things like modern pentathlon, Nordic combined, decathlon, heptathlon, like these, these sports where athletes have to do many disciplines. So uh, I kind of, I like how you sort of thought outside the square there and didn't just go, I want to be a modern pentathlete or one of these ones. You you went sports that were so diverse that I don't even think we could create a sport to combine all of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, there are some really good synergies between the two. Uh, I was a middle blocker on the volleyball court, and I'm not sure how popular volleyball is there in Australia, but it's an extremely popular sport here, for particularly for women, even men. Um, and then the beach is very popular as well. So um, so yeah, I was a middle blocker and if anyone knows kind of what that position looks like, we're in the middle of the court and we can run what we call a slide behind the setter. And that, um, that play is off of one foot and it's very similar the way that it looks to the takeoff of a high jumper. Right. So, um, I think that's why I was able to, you know, naturally succeed at both was I was able to convert speed to height off of one foot in a, in an unusual way. It's what led to success as a high jumper. And it just felt really natural to me. So, so when, why not do two sports? When you came to choosing those two late, as you mentioned, were you doing volleyball first and then do you get poached into high jump or is it the other way around? Yeah. So the way that it works here in the United States is, you know, um, soccer was another sport that I played pretty competitively uh, early on. And you go through these phases of trying new sports. And I feel like the younger kids start with like soccer and baseball or softball, if that's a girl. Um, and, you know, maybe golf or tennis. And then you get into junior high here, which is starts in like the seventh grade 
Um, and you get put through this um, schedule of sports. So it would be like volleyball is in the fall. And then right after volleyball, you go into basketball. And then you go from basketball into track. So those are kind of the three main sports. And then, you know, soccer, I think, is is maybe the third two that would conflict with track. So you probably would have to maybe choose between soccer and track. There are some sports that conflict with others. But when I got into junior high, I just started with that whole uh, rolling sports schedule and started on the volleyball court and then, you know, went into basketball. And, of course, I was tall, so made the basketball team and could then jump. When we went to the truck. <laughs> yeah. Could jump, could, could do layups all day long. <laughs> so that's another, that's another um, play on the basketball court that is very similar to the takeoff of a slide or mm. the high jump. Um, and so I was just always really good off of one foot and um, went into track season after basketball. And, and they immediately were like, okay, you over there, go to the high jump pit because I was tall. Wow. That's um, simple. And, Right. It's that simple. I mean, taller, center, higher center of, gra- center of gravity and head over to the high jump pit because you have a better chance of wow. <laughs> jumping high, even if you can't jump. <laughs> not, not, not that they didn't think put a pole in yeah. your hand, pole vault, that also might help? Or <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, pole vault requires some uh, upper body strength, and I don't know that I really was built for that. So um, I had a fast arm because... You know, unbeknownst to most people, uh, volleyball players don't really necessarily need to be strong in their upper body. You just have to be have to have a quick arm. The faster you can swing your arm, the harder you can hit. So, um, so yeah, I just it just worked. It worked for me to do do that. That's schedule of it's crazy to think that basically somebody telling you, oh, go do the high jump, essentially leads you to become an Olympian in one way, Aaron. Like, cause I mean, it's sort of like one simple decision like that on that day, you should do high jump, you're tall. And then all of a sudden you're standing there in a stadium in Australia, uh, however many years later being an Olympian. I mean, it's crazy that one moment sets you on that path. Yeah, it, it is totally interesting. I mean, I, I will say that Again, I mean, I've, I've told you about how natural the one foot takeoff was for me. Um, and when I was little, so first of all, rewind. And I told my parents that I was going to be an Olympian when I was six. That's wow. how into sports I was. So it all started kind of there of like, okay, I do want to do this because I was watching the 1984 Olympics on television and, and just was in awe and enamored with those athletes and just this big production, right? Um, and so I just thought I have to do that. And I was obsessed with sports. So I didn't know what sport it was going to be at the time or what sports. (laughs) Um, but I just knew that I wanted to be on that path. And so it was, you know, I was a little kid. We, I grew up in a really long house. So my parents had this long one story house and in order to get from one side to the other, I ran it every time. And, you know, there were Ottomans along the way and, and I was hurtling the Ottomans and I was touching the door, the door jams. And so it was like all this practice off of like one foot that I didn't really even realize was I was getting comfortable with it. And it was just a natural thing for me. So when they told me to go over to the high jump pit, I was like, well, this is super comfortable. 
you know, they, they, they showed me what it was like to high jump like a video or something. And I just replicated it and got on the start mark. And I think my first year I jumped, um, five, six. So that would be what I'm not very good at my metric when it goes that low. I normally start at like, look, as somebody who doesn't really work the other way around, I'll say that that was a a good start. Uh (laughs) So one meter 80. So what every, um, two inches is five centimeters, I think. So 75, 70, 65 or something. So I think I may have jumped like 165 my seventh grade year. Mm. And then which was what? 13. And then wow. when I was 14, I jumped 170 and then 75 and then 80 by the time I was a freshman or a sophomore. So let's say 16 and then 85 by 17 90 by 18. So I jumped one meter 90 when I was 18. Wow. And 93 or 95 when I was 19. The so progression kept it going. Kind of, yeah. The progression was just a consistent incline at that time. Incredible. Just want to backtrack what you're saying you're watching the Olympics when you were six at LA, of course, 84. Now, obviously, the Olympics in any year is a big thing when they're on TV and that, but I mean, 84, Los Angeles. I'm sure not only were you, but everybody was captivated by that. And that's a very groundbreaking Olympics, how that also changed the Olympics moving forward. We saw it here in Australia. You competed at Sydney, but I was 13 when Sydney was on. So I saw how that (laughs) captivated Australia and how everybody got involved in that. But did that sort of help that sense of, I'm sure, US pride that was taking over the country and those very groundbreaking Olympics to really kind of give you that Olympic dream in 84? Yeah, I'm sure it did. And and by the way, like, don't even try to do the math on it. Just let's, let's, I'm uh, just, let's Aaron, without being disrespectful, I'm actually glad to have somebody who's older than me for once. I'm so sick of getting athletes uh-huh. on the show who are like, oh, my first Olympics was London. I remember watching on TV. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, whenever I tell the story of my first Olympics at six being 1984, then people are like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> 1977, 78. She's born. It's so, like the metric, and we, yeah. we we don't we don't do the conversions. It's fine. Yeah, yeah let's not do any conversions <laughs> anymore. Um, but yeah, I think that um, the '84 Olympics were just so amazing, and I was like, oh my gosh, they're like right around the corner, like they're in our country, and it's pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, I just was totally enamored by the Olympic rings, by anything, you know, red, black, blue, green, yellow. I just was um, so amazing. And it was like my, I had like a one track mind from that point. Literally as we almost, uh, we're not really because of all the different sports, but so when it, when it came to that knowing then, I mean, all those sports you're mentioning are kind of Olympic sports. So was that almost like a deliberate thing that you kind of with all those sports or was it just so happened that every, I mean, I guess softball and baseball at the time weren't, uh, obviously would yeah. go on to be, but, uh, I mean, was that kind of a deliberate thing when you chose those sports? You know, I don't know that it was like deliberate. I just loved being active and loved challenge, challenging myself, um, athletically and coordination wise, um, again, super tall, but unusually coordinated for my height. Um, 
and really fast at a young age and, you know, not fast anymore, comparatively speaking. So everybody caught up to me there. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it was just all the sports that are really popular in America is kind of what I, what I tried out. And I was just looking for something that I would easily excel at, that I could be coachable at. Um, when, and it, that's how I narrowed it down. When it comes to the, the height um, you, you know, you're, you're born tall. Uh, and obviously, as you say, there are certain sports straight away that people are like basketball, like do this, do that. Does it become a bit of an annoyance sometimes when it's kind of, you were just almost pigeonholed into the obvious sports, because we do see often that taller athletes can break through in sports. Like you mentioned gymnastics, like we can see it is a possibility. Obviously it makes it a little bit difficult based on that, but automatically when people are just like high jump, you're tall. She'd be like, no, I want to do discus. Like, I mean, leave me alone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I could have, I could have maybe thrown the shot again. Like yeah. I don't have the upper body strength very much, but, um, but I did have a high center of gravity, which also helps in the shot put. Um, but yeah, you know, it's very like, you're very much stereotyped, you know, like you're, you're tall and you know, you're thin, you must be a high jumper. And you know, at that time, I was kind of like, you know what, if that's where my skills are, and that's what's going to get me to the Olympics, then fine, like put me over in the high jump, you know, and it was something that I just really loved doing. And I, of course, loved succeeding at it. Um, And then, you know, the volleyball court, I loved the camaraderie with my with my teammates. And it's funny, because it ended up being that volleyball probably ended up being my favorite sport in my career wow. of the two. It started as a, as a track athlete in the high jump, but really ended up as I evolved as a person, as a human, I think that the, the camaraderie with my teammates became really special in a team sport. So, you know, I, I lived that life of a team and an individual athlete to, you know, at an Olympic level or, you know, close to Olympic level in one, um, missing the cut, but, you know, it was really special to be able to experience sport at that high of a level in both, both individual and team. And I just truly loved my teammates. And now you ask me, I used to hate my height in school, particularly because all the boys, I think looked at me like I was an alien, you know? Um, and I so desperately like wanted to go out on a date, but, um, but then, you know, when I get, now that I'm older, I'm like, why couldn't I have gotten a couple extra inches? Cause <laughs> those two extra inches or so would have, maybe I would have made an Olympic team on the volleyball court too. So. Wow. It's uh, one of those weird I was things. Shortest- it's like when it comes to like men and women and stereotypes, just on a side note, like why is it that women always seem to find very tall men attractive, but you don't ever hear really of like men who like, Oh, women like tall. I don't get that. Where's the disparity in that? That's. That's strange. You know, I mean, I married my husband who is taller than me, but I really didn't discriminate. I was so tall that I didn't have the ability to discriminate because (laughs) I was taller than most every, all men, you know? So most of the time it was like little bitty guys that would ask me out on dates, you know? I think they've just found it. I don't know if they were subconsciously trying to increase the height in their gene pool or um, you know what the reason was but short men smaller men used to like love asking me out on dates and there then you, you know I was 
So I didn't discriminate, but good. I just, I, I, I did, you know, I did end up marrying one that was taller. There you go. You, you, you found it. It was possible. That's, no, that's I did. Something. I did. It's not accident though. Which are you going back to the, the, yeah, the teammate dynamic versus an individual sport, because again, that is a unique nature of the two sports that you do that you are, as you're saying, camaraderie, you've got all these teammates, you're, you're playing together, you know, all these sessions. And yet then when you're on the track, it's very much you against everybody else. It's, you know, even your teammates who are there for your college or the U S wherever you're competing, you've still got to beat them. You know, that's, that's something very, very unique. Was there, I guess, sort of when you were going through that period, things like was sports psychology, a real thing back then that could kind of help you with those dynamics? Like, did you sort of speak to coaches about kind of getting used to one or the other? Cause I imagine with those distinct seasons, you're in a headspace for one and then you've got to transition into the other pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we did have sports psychology and even on the U S national team, um, when we would make, you know, world championship teams or, you know, with USA volleyball, we had sports psychologists. I don't think that it was utilized as much as it should be, or it was as prevalent as it should have been. Um, I think that sports psychology is so important. And I, I say that too, because of what I do now, which is I coach now. I don't coach on the athletic field, but I coach with like mindset and high performance and life coaching. Um, so I, I think that's such an important piece to life and sport and all of the above. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I would have spent a little bit more time in the mindset space when I was a professional athlete. We, um, you know, I, I worried far too much about, you know, trying to hit the ball hard or, or jump high and, and didn't, didn't put enough time into that. But yeah, it's definitely important. And I think it's becoming more and more important today with athletes particularly because there's so much to get distracted with mm. uh, so we really have to 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 stay on course which particularly in high jump we uh we'll talk a little bit more i guess about sort of uh where we're at with high jump in the board right now but we had eleanor patterson on uh, a year or so ago and you know we talked a lot about that psychological element of you versus the bar you know almost just making that bar yours you know that, that i'm going to get over it which I think when you look at some of these sports which look so physical, obviously we know there's always a psychological element to all sports. But to me, high jump is one of those ones where you can do all the physical training as much as you need to do. You've got the jump right. You've got the technique. You've got the speed and everything. But sometimes it's just like you just can't get over that mental ability to get over that bar on that one day. Like, Do you always find yourself like you versus the bar mentality throughout your high jump career? Yeah, there's always a mental component to, you know, really every sport at a high level, but you're right. I mean, I do think that the thing that stands out about high jump and pole vault also are that it's you against the bar and it gets pretty daunting when the bar gets up to one meter, 95, two meters, you know, it's, it's much taller than you are tall. So you're, you're kind of in your head, you're kind of trying to work through like, well, wait a minute, if I'm not even that tall, how do I get my body over a bar that tall? And it just doesn't make sense in your head. And, you know, and so you, you, it's so important to go through the mental exercises to, to get there. And any high jumper at that level knows that. I imagine that 
there are so many high jumpers out there that are so physically talented and physically more talented than the ones that are at the Olympics, but you have to have a combination of physical and mental at that level. And what I, one thing that I, one, uh, uh, statistic or not statistic, but one trivia question I always ask is what are the two events on the track where you always lose, hmm. you know, you always end with failure. Hmm. High jump and, and pole vault, right? It's the high jump and the pole vault, yeah. you know, like unless you decide to, for some reason to quit early, you always end in a negative space. It's a great way of looking at it. Never thought about yeah. it quite that way before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. So, you know, there were times I think that I, I, I jumped really, really well. And I, I was just like, you know what? That's, that's, we're good. Mm. We're good. You know, um, why ruin a good thing? I mean, I, I won the competition. I don't have to go as high as I can go. You know, like I'm saving part of it was like, I can save it for the next meet when it really matters more. Um, but part of it's like, you just kind of want to exit the track on a high note. And that doesn't, you don't get the opportunity to do that hardly yeah. ever. Rare that you ever get to yeah, end without crushing out. Which just on that quickly, what's your take then what we're seeing a lot nowadays? We saw it at the Olympics. We saw it at the World Championships recently about how when you've got two people going head to head and they just decide to share it. Now, uh, it's it's nice. It's friendly. But I'm of the opinion, Aaron, like, come on, like your competitors <laughs> keep going. Like, you know, don't share it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I knew, how did I know that this question was going to come? That's it's number, um, it's on the list. Come but, on. I, but I did, but I did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can kind of see where the athletes are coming from. I think in the pole vault in the women's pole vault, when it happened at the more recent, um, world championships, I read a little blurb from the U S Paul Walter, who said basically like they had been going for a really long time mm. and particularly in the pole vault when one wrong move and you land on your head, you know, or it's just like a not necessarily like a safe position to be in at, after a certain point, you know, your body you know, you can get the twisties kind of like Simone Biles did where it's like, and, and that's all, that's another thing where I'm like, you know, so many people were like, you can't just quit. You're at the Olympics, you know, but I really kind of get where the space that she was in and in that, like it, there's a point where it kind of becomes dangerous and not as much on the high jump apron necessarily, but I can see it on the, um, in the, in the pole vault. And I can understand it on the balance beam or in the gymnastics arena. It, you know, your health and your livelihood is, is first ultimately. I have a, a fellow high jumper that jumped back in, back when I jumped Jamie Nieto. I don't know if you know who, who he is, but um, made, you know, a couple, three, maybe Olympic teams. And he, he wasn't actually jumping, but he had just finished a jump. And he did a backflip on the pit. And he, you know, this is something that he has done a gazillion times. I don't even know how many times, like you can't count how many times he's done it. Did a backflip, wrong step, and landed on his neck. He's been paralyzed or, you know, handicapped for years now. Oh. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, so when your body 
gets to that place where it's like, mm, you know, now is maybe a time to quit. And unfortunately, you know, it happened at the world championships, but they were probably both like, we have put it all on the track at this point and we're only getting more tired and might just be one of those times where we just need to call it. And the, the high jump one where it happened the first time around, I just had to put myself in those shoes and think the Olympics is about coming together, right? All countries coming together and being in one place. I mean, it was amazing when I was in Sydney, um, knowing that in that Olympic village, all company, all countries existed at the same time with no fighting, no arguing, everybody's just happy to be there. And it's just a community mm. for like the only time we get to have that. And so I feel like the Olympics does and should represent that. So when those high jumpers, you know, had had the jump off and they were like, you know what, is it possible? Is it possible for us to both get a gold medal? I don't know if I was in that spot and I put my life towards trying to win a gold medal and I had that opportunity and we could come together and it could be like a friendly thing. I don't know that I would have done the same thing. It's this, you know? it's so layered. Like, like it, I, I, I put, I picture it like tennis. Like I don't see, you know, um, Djokovic and Federer at a Wimbledon final playing five sets. So, you know, like 2019 in the fifth, God, this is long. Do you just want to share the trophy? Like, I mean, I think like you get to a point where you've been battling for so long that you want to see, but, but at the same time, you're right. Like I see it. It's like a camaraderie thing. It's nice. And at the end of the day, you're guaranteed a gold medal. Whereas like you might lose it if you keep going. Yeah. So right? it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I totally hear what you're saying and I can see both sides. Yeah. I'm just like, if I had to put myself in that situation, would I really want to chance a gold medal that I had been working for since I was six? You know, yeah. I'm not sure. Versus guaranteed to that, share and it. Have, yeah. And to have that moment, that's a really unique moment mm. to share it with someone from another country, which is kind of like, you know, you could, you could argue the Olympics is about that, or you could also argue the Olympics is about whoever's the best wins, you know, so I don't know. I can see both sides, but yeah. it is, it was interesting to watch. It's, it's created history. I mean, they will always go down in history for that moment and it will be forever shown like, you know, in 20 years time, great sportsmanship moments of the Olympics and they'll, that'll always be shown. So I guess in one way you maybe transcend history a little bit more by being in that moment. Maybe. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. Like if you think about it from a financial perspective, yeah. beyond, you know, sportsmanship and all that, you get a lot more for a gold medal, unfortunately, than a silver medal when you're getting sponsorships and notoriety and things after the Olympics. And you'd always get you that know? question, wouldn't you? Let's be honest. Like if you were in that situation, Aaron, and then you ended up winning the silver, you'd always get that, do you regret not sharing the medal question? Like you'd get that I for the know. rest of your life. <laughs> you would, and I don't really know that I want to answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Stop asking me I'd that question. It, I'd rather it go down as a cool moment in history, I guess. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Hey, I think we're going more towards a positive column there on, on, on that, that yeah. decision. So through that progression when you're going through both the sports, obviously it ultimately leads to the Sydney Olympics, which we'll touch on in just a moment. But was there a case where high jump became the one that you were more likely to go to the Olympics? I mean, just with the volleyball side of things, 
How was that selection period of the 90s? How close were you to making an Olympic team with Team USA for volleyball? So I didn't join the national team until after I made the Olympic team on the track. Right. I didn't even go to compete with USA Volleyball until 2001. And yeah, I think that, you know, I was recruited by, you know, every volleyball school, you know, in the country when I was in high school. But I was like a raw talent, I think, in, in volleyball that hadn't put a whole lot towards it you know it was just kind of natural raw talent and i think that they knew that they knew that i would develop a lot in college um but i knew that i had a really strong shot at making an olympic team and uh, on the high in the high jump for usa track and field i was um i think i tied for fifth my senior year in high school and i don't know what it ended up being off of misses if it ended up being lower than that off of misses. But I know that height wise, I tied for fifth. And so I was kind of right up there at a really young age. And so I thought, you know, I want to make my first Olympic team in a sport that I kind of almost feel like I can taste it right now, you know, four more years. And there should be no reason why I'm not jumping more than well enough to make an Olympic team. So that was really kind of my decision on why to go the path of track. Now, if you ask me now, maybe what what I should have done, it's tough to know. I think about this often, actually. Um, I really do think that it may have been more difficult to make an Olympic team on the volleyball court than on the track, simply because I had all the control on the track. You know, it's one person. You just have to rely on your ability to perform and perform on that day. And, you know, if you can do that, you make an Olympic team. It's very objective. Whereas the volleyball court is very subjective. And so you have to rely on whether the coach thinks you're good enough, whether you gel with your teammates the right way. There are just so many more pieces to the puzzle to make an Olympic team in a team sport. And um, I was short. I was the shortest one on the national team in my position. Wow. Which seems crazy, right? Because I'm one meter 85 You must have been used to that when you turn around and say that you're short on a team. <laughs> I know, which is why I'm like, why can't I have a couple extra inches, you know? <laughs> um, but all the other middle blockers were, you know, 6'3", 1 meter 94 or so. And so I was just short for my position. Um, and... I think I probably paid the price for that when it came to the selection of the actual Olympic team because we had a coach that was uh, Japanese. His name's Toshi Yoshida. And he really, I think, valued height, right? Um, all these American players that are so tall and can jump so high and hit so hard. Um, so I think he really valued height, and I just wasn't that. And so I had that going against me. So now I look at it and think, well, maybe I should have tried to make an Olympic team first on the volleyball court. And if I didn't make it, try again and again and then do the track. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's always a toss up. I don't know what the right answer is. 
answer was. I mean, ultimately, you made an Olympics error, and so I think that either way, right. you, you know, you can you can take that on board. Which I, I find it fascinating that sort of through that high jump journey. So before ultimately get to Sydney for the Olympics, you did go to Sydney though for a World Junior Championships, where you ultimately finished fourth four years out from the Olympics. And obviously, at that point, you knew Sydney was an Olympic city in four years' time. That was a, an Atlanta Olympic year, but you knew that that was Sydney in four years. Was that more of a driving factor to kind of motivate you towards that, knowing that four years' time I could be back here at an Olympic Games? Oh, yeah. I mean, competing in World Junior Championships in 1996 in Sydney was so special because I was like, this is where it's going to happen in four years. And, you know... I'll be damned if I'm not going to, you know, get to that Olympic Games in four years in this same city. So Sydney was just on my radar. And, you know, the only disappointing part of that trip was really just that I uh, felt like I should have been in the medals for that one. Um, Just jumping so well. I think I was clean through 190 as an 18-year-old, you know. All I had to do was clear one more bar and I think I may have missed out on medals through attempts or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was such a great prep to be like, to be able to say, you know, four years from now, this is where the actual Olympics are going to be held. So I will have been here and seen the city and all those things and gave me some good experience at a, a high level competition as well. And was that your first time to Australia at that point? Yeah, first time. Wow. it's. I mean, it's a big trip. Like I think kind of, uh, you know, is. a lot of people don't understand just how big of a trip, particularly, you know, 20 or so years ago uh, when things were even a little bit different with travel. I can imagine it felt a lot longer back then as well. I mean, it did. Um, I think that was before, what, 9-11, so you just walked right into the airport. But, <laughs> but yeah. which is foreign to even think about it now. But, uh, but, yeah, it was, you know, it was a long trip. And if... If it wasn't that long, I would have been there multiple times since, you know, it just, it's, it takes a lot of planning to be like, okay, I'm going to go travel for an entire day and, and then I'll be there. You know, I want to block off a long period of time if I'm going to make that long of a trip. Yeah. You know, you got to kind of uh, make the most of it. Fast forward four years later then. So, um, take us through that moment when you knew you were going to the Olympics, when you were qualified, what was, what was that moment like knowing that here it is, this six-year-old Aaron dream of uh, going to an Olympics is about to come true. I mean, I think there's always this moment, particularly in sports where, you know, it's objective. Like I said, you know, it's in the subject, subjective sports, it's a little, you know, different because you probably have a good idea that you're going to make it and, you know, you're in the starting lineup and all those things. But in an objective sport like track and field where you go based off of time or um, performance, there's always this one little moment. And it's like this second of time where you're like, holy cow, it's happening, you know? Uh, And I will never, that's one moment in my life that I will never, ever forget. There are a lot of moments that were pretty special that I've forgotten Um, but that is one moment that I will never forget. And I remember it like it was yesterday. We're on the track for the finals. I had jumped really well in the prelim. Um, the bar had been set to meter 93, I think. And, um, 
back on my on the mark and I think it was a second attempt um, at that height that I was like if I make this bar I am going to Sydney I am going to finally realize that dream of being an Olympian and I mean it's been going on since I was six right so I'm 20 21 or 22 at the time. And I just remember like starting that approach and it just all coming together. And the moment that I rounded the corner to take off that penultimate step to the, the takeoff. And I think in the high jump, you, you kind of know before you even take off, if that makes sense, whether it's all coming together. And then that moment of takeoff is like, everything sinks perfectly. You take off and I'm just like, holy cow, this is it. Soared over the bar and it was like just this sigh of relief, to be honest. Wow. Of like, it's such a special moment. Which you I, know? I love hearing that because, you know, we get a lot of athletes on this show who say are in sports where, you know, they'll qualify a quota and then it's still ultimately down to the team to select them closer. A lot of our winter athletes, of course, who are, yeah. points base and they literally don't know till two weeks before the olympics until they're going so it is kind of that uniqueness of track and field as you say we look at other sports they like swimming in that where it is time based or position based in a trials where you know if you clear a time you finish in the top two you're going so you've got that level i mean it, does that allow you better prep time do you think when it comes to that given that you're not so psychologically thinking well I've got the quota but they might not choose me I've got to wait like a month if you know what I mean it gives you better prep time to enable yourself to get ready for an Olympics versus those other athletes yeah that's the beauty of track and field and of course it doesn't happen like this all the time because in track um you know I don't know how if it's the same across all countries but we have three spots in each event but you you not only have to make one of those three spots, you also have to make the standard. Mm. And so if there are more than, if there's at least one person, I think this is the rules now, maybe they've changed it, but I think this is it. If there's one person that's made the A standard, then, and then no one else has made the A standard, then that one person is going to go and there's no, you know, they're just going to send one person. I think. But um, if no one has made the A standard, they'll send a B standard athlete. Um, and so, you know, you kind of know how it's going to all pan out at the Olympic trials. The only time that you don't know is that like, let's say I'm, I finished third in the high jump, but I didn't have the A standard and somebody that finished ahead of me or behind me has the A standard. I still have like a month or maybe two, it depends on when they're, when the cutoff is to try to jump that standard. So I'll probably immediately be over to Europe trying to compete in as many meets as I can to get that standard by a certain deadline. And so that's the only time when like being at the Olympic trials is that you don't immediately know, hmm. but 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you know when you've competed at the trials whether you're going or not. And it's a really special moment. And it does give you time to continue to prepare during that time leading up to the games, which, you know, for Sydney, Sydney was later because of the opposite season. Yeah, right? in September. So yeah. we had we had quite a bit of time to prepare, which for me was the death of me, <clears throat> unfortunately. 
Um, I didn't need that time to prepare. I had been going for four years in college, volleyball track, volleyball track, volleyball with no off season. So I needed to compete as soon after the trials as I could. And I just was totally burnt out and tired. You, so you know, needed them in that. July, like usual, basically when the Olympics would be. I did. I did. I needed to like compete at the trials and go jump at the games. Like mm. that's the way it needed to be for me. But having that time, that extra time was not beneficial for me in particular at all. And I did not have a good showing as a result. I, you know, we can, well, we can talk about this all day, but. It's interesting you bring that up because we recently, a couple of months ago, sort of had a, a bit of a special uh, period there where we talked about the Sydney Olympic bid and kind of, cause it's 30 years since the bid was announced. And a lot of the discussion around the initial planning was about the fact that we'd have to have it as a later games, given our seasons and everything are different and how that would affect the athletes. So I think you're actually the first athlete we've had on the show, Aaron, who went to Sydney, who can kind of sort of vouch for that. That was a bit difficult, particularly for the North America, you know, Northern hemisphere athletes, sorry, where that's so different. So it's fascinating to kind of hear that perspective about how that can affect your performance based on a different scheduling. Yeah. You know, I, I also think though that I wouldn't go completely off of what I say. I was a young, I was young, you know, I was one of the younger ones on the U S Olympic team, Olympic team, if not the youngest on the track and field team in an individual event. I mean, I know that there were athletes, I think that were alternates on the relay team or somewhere on the relay team that may have been a year or two younger than me, but I was the youngest when it came to age for an individual event in the track on the track team. Wow. So I was just, also immature athletically. Um, I also looked at Sydney as this is my first Olympic games, but it will not be my last. I'll be in, you know, three or four more of these. So I'm just kind of using this one as a trial run. And the moral of that story is carpe diem because you never know when you're not going to get another shot. And mm. I can tell you the story of what happened every four years after that, that, that took away my opportunity to go again. Um, but yeah, I think had I been a little bit more mature athletically, mentally, emotionally, all the things, maybe I was 26 the next time or 30 the next time in the next games that I would have handled that a little bit differently. And I would have adjusted my training a little bit better leading up to that just from pure experience. But being a collegiate dual sport athlete makes it does make that, you know, timeline very difficult when it comes to trying to peak at the right time when you've been in season for, for sure. eight straight seasons back to back. Did you allow yourself through all of that when you're in Sydney to soak up the Olympic atmosphere? We always love hearing from athletes about village life, like opening ceremonies, <laughs> just like, oh, I'm walking around the the village and oh there's ex-athlete over there that I never get a chance to see in my other events I mean as such a young athlete are you taking those moments when you're at those Olympics to feel those oh yeah oh yeah and I think um my only the thing that makes me the saddest I guess and and the happiest is that we didn't have social media back mm, then mm. so good and bad of not having social media back then we didn't have the ability to kind of uh, memorialize those experiences quite as much as they do now. 
you know, at the same time, social media can be horrible in so many ways. So, yeah, but I do um, have so many great memories. I wrote for ESPN. Um, I journaled for ESPN so that people could understand what village life was like. And I, I don't even know where those journals uh, are. But I, <laughs> I know, right? I'm trying to, I, I really probably do need to, to try to dig them up. But um, they would publish the journals because people couldn't get in the village. And so it was like they would rely on what, what I was saying from the inside. And, and that was fun. And then, you know, my parents stayed in a um, condo building called, I think it was called the Toaster, which <laughs> is like right across from the Sydney Opera House and the bridge. Fantastic. So it's like a condo uh building that you know they they rented that's where we stayed which was like a super short ferry ride over the water to um, the at&t house which mm. was like waterfront grill or something where they had the usa house for the athletes and everything so their location within sydney was like the most amazing location and they would look out their window every night. It's, it's, to the I'm, just, I'm saying, Aaron, it's an American thing. We're just seeing that with the Women's World Cup. Fox Sports position themselves right underneath the Harbour Bridge opposite the uh, the Opera House. So Americans know where to scout the locations here in Sydney. For sure, yeah. I mean, that, like, it's it, that's an amazing location yeah. from, from what I could see, you know. So, and then we, um, my brother and I and a buddy of his, uh, we climbed the Sydney Harbour Bridge the night before we left. And that was right. really cool, too. Fantastic. Uh, what was I'd lots love, of great memories? Well, I'd love to hear. Like, obviously, I don't want to touch on what happened after the Olympics with one of these athletes I'm going to mention. But like, I think Sydney 2000. Obviously, I have all the memories around Australia. But I remember that bravado and confidence and the expectations on the track and field team from the US. I'm thinking Marion Jones. <laughs> I'm thinking Michael Johnson. I'm thinking Maurice Green. And like, they were as bigger names in this country as they were with all of our athletes. Like, I mean, what was that yeah. like to be part of a team when you've got those people, because no disrespect to modern track and field teams, I just feel you don't have that swagger and that nature that Team USA used to bring to an Olympics. I mean, what a team, yeah. right? Or at least what a team as far as notoriety is concerned. I don't know that era of track and field, particularly like for the sprinters and stuff, was quite a big era with some pretty big names. Um and I, you know, I look back on that and I'm like, oh, I got to compete and, you know, be on the team with a lot of those famous track and field athletes. Pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, we can talk about the trouble they got themselves into as well. But, you know, I mean, it was it was they were big names. I you mean, know? I think back to Marie Screen. Like, I mean, it's just it's amazing to think now, like obviously the era of Usain Bolt now is, is over and this was pre-Usain Bolt. But like, I mean. Before St. Bolt, Maurice Green was kind of the it man, wasn't he? He was he was confident. He had swagger. He was just that personality. I used to love Maurice Green. He was one of my favorite athletes uh, as a kid. The Green Machine. Um, and then, you know, John Drummond yeah. was, like, very outrageous. And, um, you know, and then the gold shoes of Michael Johnson. Oh. And then, of course, Marion Jones, which makes me sick to have to think about it now. Um, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, you you hope that these people are are clean, but you know, 
it's unfortunate our sport has been so dirty for so long yeah and it's it's actually it's 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 interesting looking back in that period i've got like a whole bunch of like sydney 2000 books that you know were released months after and you've just got pages celebrating her and her achievements and it's just yeah it doesn't really hold up too well now does it no no it doesn't it's so unfortunate that whole group of athletes that were all training Mm. together it's 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 sick. It makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, very, very unfortunate. But, uh, yeah. I, just, I obviously don't want to uh, – we want to move on a little bit just quickly to some of the volleyball stuff before we get to our last questions. But just, I mean, judging on what you're saying in terms of the performance and obviously the, the different seasons, had you set yourself a goal of I'm going to get a medal, I'm going to the Olympics, I'm going to win a medal, I'm going to make the final, like, and, and obviously not making the final and sort of leaving the way you did, I can imagine, not the games that you were looking for? No, definitely not the games that I was looking for. Um, I expected to perform better. I think I had a goal to get to the final. I think that um, I was never one in my athletic career to set low goals. But at that time when I made that Olympic team and there was so much going on just athletically, mentally, physically, emotionally with me that I struggled. I struggled to stay focused and in the game uh, through the Olympic Games. And I, I was just, like I said, I was tired. I was so tired. I had gone through um, a year prior to that in 99 where I was struggling. It was kind of like uh, what I imagine Simone Biles saying, which she has the twisties and just it, nothing's working. And I remember um, like not being able to clear a bar the year before. And it was just like, like a total mental block. And that's how you know it's like so mental because I couldn't clear, like I think 5'10 was like the maximum I could clear, which is my starting height. So one meter 80 is normally where I would come into the competition and I couldn't even clear a one meter 80 bar. So you just get into these really bad mental states. And I, I pulled myself out just in time to make the Olympic team because it was like, I will not miss making this Olympic team, but it was emotionally exhausting to try to get myself there. So when I got there and I made the team, I completely fell apart after after you know jumping over that bar and starting to prepare for for the olympics i just wanted to make the final and that's kind of when i was like you know what there will be more of these i just need to take this experience in and learn everything that i can learn from being here and trying to power through what i'm going through and then the next time i'll win a medal Mm. and it was never a nice time. <laughs> Which just on that, you touched on it briefly, but sort of the next two cycles, obviously volleyball, I'm assuming, came much more of a thing going to the Pan Ams in 2003. But was the direction from then to stick with high jump towards an Olympics or was that goal then? Was it switch focus to Team USA Volleyball and this would be my next Olympics? Sort of what progressed after Sydney? Yeah, so I thought I would make an Olympic team or I had hoped I would make an Olympic team in 2004 on the volleyball court. And so I spent uh, that next quadrennial through, you know, training towards Athens on the volleyball, primarily on the volleyball court. Um, And I high jumped a little bit in the off season as well. 
Um, but I, I also went and played a season in, in Italy professionally. That was, that was where you go play professionally to make money. And that's how most volleyball players make a majority of their money is playing overseas in Europe. So I went overseas to play in Europe and I high jumped in the off season. And a couple times during my volleyball season, I would like sneak out and go jump an indoor meet in, uh, in Italy. And, and so I would get my marks there that would qualify me for other stuff. And then I learned that I, you know, we got the final roster for Athens and I didn't make the Olympic team on the volleyball court. So I tried to transfer, transition real quickly over to the track. I had, you know, a couple, three months before the Olympic trials on the track and I qualified based on those marks. And, you know, the truth of the story is that I started dating an Italian guy and he cheated on me and between the prelim and the final of the olympic trials is when i found out (laughs) and spent the whole day in the finals just kind of a mess and i ended up being an alternate on the track so i finished fourth uh, with that little period of training towards the olympic team so i kind of think of it as being like a dual sport alternate in 2004 and that is the worst place you could possibly I would rather not be an alternate at all yeah than to have to be the next position in both sports um so at that time I was like well you know I'm not gonna let that happen again so I'm just gonna focus on making the Olympic team on the track one last time in 2008 and then maybe Beijing is my last Olympics um and I got a very good contract to go play volleyball in Japan in 2007 and I had never been injured before so I was like you know I always jump really well right off of my volleyball season right off of my volleyball season are like my highest marks because I think you're getting all those repetitions off of one leg that are you know repetitions that you're not trying to get they're just kind of naturally happening and so my my power output right after my volleyball season was always incredible. So I thought I'll just take, I'll take this contract. It's really good money. And then I'll make another Olympic team after my track season or after my volleyball season, probably a week after I turned 30. So this is my birthdays in in December. So this was like right at the beginning of the new year in January. 50 or 14, 15 in the fifth set, which it's three out of five in volleyball. You play three out of five sets. We were in the fifth set and you only go to 15 and it was like 14, 15 in the fifth set. You have to win by two. They, I get a slide. They, they set me a slide. I hit the ball, come down, knee completely buckles. Mm. So it's medial lateral meniscus and total ACL blowout. Damn. And so I was like, oh, well, welcome to the thirties. Here I am with a torn ACL and a blown out knee. And you just, you know, that's only a few months before the games. You cannot get a knee completely reconstructed and rebuilt and then expect to go out and make an Olympic team on the track. It's not possible. Wow. And no motivation from that point in to try and sort of switch it into London. Sort of it was was done at that point. I, I almost did. I almost did have that, you know, I, I did have that vision. Um, I think after 
blowing out my knee in Japan, I started to make that transition of like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like life goes on past sports and it's not going to last forever. So I need to start preparing for life after sport. And so I started studying for my GMAT. I took the GMAT to get back into school to get my MBA, my master's in business administration. Um, got into a few MBA programs, ended up choosing to go back to the University of Texas at Austin to get my MBA and spent two years in the full-time program there um, to just go to the next level academically and my education. And, and then I made the transition into corporate America after that um, and ended up officially retiring during that time. It's so weird to hear those words, officially retiring at what, like the age of 30 something. Like it just, it's such a weird, <laughs> like uh, for athletes it's common, but you hear that. And I've got to say, yeah. uh, University of Texas, Longhorns, I've been outside that stadium in Austin. It's, it's absolutely insane. As an Australian who university here, you're lucky to get a 200 seat stadium to see that mammoth arena standing in front of me. I mean, it's just, Incredible, incredible. And go Longhorns. It's absolutely insane. Hook them horns. Yeah, hook them uh, horns. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's a great, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such a great environment for sports there. And um, you know, I, I had to go back to my alma mater and um, compete or, you know, go get my, go further my education and get ready for the real world. And, you know, spent 10 years in corporate America and then decided, wait a minute, no, no, really, who am I and what do I want to when I grow up and yeah. and then recently just made a career pivot again. Well, I, I'm going to just That's touch cool. that before we get into the questions. One thing I just actually really want to touch on now that we're just on college sports really quick, quickly, we've just seen recently, what was it, 95,000 people at a, at a volleyball game in Nebraska, was it not? I mean, yeah. how does that make you feel considering that you played that sport for a national level that we're getting that many people to a volleyball game? That was insane. Insane. So I... I Nebraska was one of the schools I was looking at when I was trying to decide where to go to, to Cornhuskers, right? College. Cornhuskers. Yeah. yeah. And another huge athletic program. And, um, they have always drawn the biggest volleyball crowds. I mean, people are crazy about the sport there. So why not take the football stadium? That is like how many hundred thousand people? I don't know how many people can fit in there. Um, and fill it to watch a volleyball game. So they did, you know, something that was totally unprecedented and put a volleyball court in the middle of the football stadium and build the football stadium. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, everyone in here knew about that. It was world record for a women's amazing. sporting event, was it not? As well, I think. So, yeah, yeah, just amazing. I don't, I can't imagine the nosebleeds would have been very good uh, viewpoints. But at least she was here. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, how could you even see the ball up there? But, you know. They were having fun. They, that that, that, that yeah. was the main thing. Uh, before we wrap up with uh, sort of these fun get-to-know questions, Erin, uh, just uh, what you're doing right now. So you, you touched on a little bit before. So sort of coaching, consulting, give us a bit of an update and sort of uh, how do you find this? I mean, this obviously uh, must be very rewarding. Some of the people I'm sure you can actually help. Yeah, yeah. So, um about a year ago or a little bit more than that, I, I was selling commercial real estate or leasing commercial real estate. I was in commercial real estate brokerage for a large international company called Colliers International, which I think also exists in Australia. Um, I was, you know, on the supply chain and logistics side of the business. So like large warehouses. So think like Amazon trying to store all that product and then 
um, shipping it out to all the, uh, the users and users. And so I was doing that and I just kind of woke up one day and thought, you know what? I don't know that this is it. And I had not felt that same passion and drive and purpose that I did when I was competing as an athlete. So I knew what it felt like and it just didn't feel like this was it. So, um, I actually ended up hiring a coach, hiring a life coach and trying to talk through it all with her. And then it dawned on me. I was like, oh my gosh, well, athletes don't try to go to the Olympic games without a coach. Like every athlete has a coach. Like why, how do people, why are people trying to go through life without a coach? You know, we all need to be coached in some aspect. And it was through working with her that I thought, well, now it's crystal clear. I, I feel like I need to be coaching others to, as I say, awaken their Olympian within because we all have it. We all have something that we are at Olympic level inside of us if you can just tap into what that is. And so I love it. I, I work with clients to, you know, uncover their purpose and their passion and work with their mindset to develop a stronger mindset and, um, you know, achieve their goals and, and optimize themselves, level up. So it's, it's super rewarding. Um, this is the one thing that I've ever done where I felt like, wow, okay, this feels a lot like I did when I was an athlete, something that's challenging and rewarding and all the things. And so it's been, been a great journey for sure. And that's ascensioncoaching.co. Am I correct there in saying that, Erin? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's ascensioncoaching.co. It's not .com. It's .co. So it's not a not a uh, typo, <laughs> <It's real. laughs> which I, which it was a fun story in organizing this interview. I think I clarified that with your your manager. I said, yeah. oh, just to confirm that he's because you know I didn't want to make that mistake. So I'm sure you probably get that yeah. a lot. So uh, yeah, fantastic. we do, we do. <laughs> what a, what a, what a great way to kind of utilize that though, and and everything as well. So uh, very uh, interesting transition. Erin, we close out every interview with a set of fun get to know yourself questions. Now, all our listeners know that we get these from a questionnaire that Team Canada gave their athletes ahead of the Rio and Pyeongchang Olympics. Simple, fun, easy questions, no right or wrong answers. There's always a drawing element. If you wish, it's 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 optional. If you are a good drawer Gosh. and want to, you can send it in to us later and uh, we can put it on social media. So, for example, if you want to draw a picture of yourself, you can. Oh, she's got a notepad. I like this. I got, um, I got a notepad already. Well, I mean, but, but you by all means doodle. You can draw a picture of yourself. There's draw a picture of a Canadian animal, but we can make that an American animal. Um, and what would the coolest Olympic medal look like? So that's that's your options Ooh. if you want to doodle around while we're we're answering these. But again, no pressure, okay. no pressure. Uh, but while you're doing okay. that, I like this. This is the first time I think someone's doing it live. Um, we'll start off with if you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Um, I can just pick one because there are so many. Pick multiple. That... Yeah, I, I think we're, we're going to allow that today. I, I would love for, for Sydney to, to go host again. another game. Um, it was such a great, they, they did such a fabulous job. The best ever, as Juan Antonio said, best, of course. Best ever, best ever. I'm really excited for Paris, although I don't know logistically how how it's going to be, but I just love Europe in general. Um, 
I'd like another one in Barcelona. Mm. I've heard Barcelona is really good, and I didn't get to go to that one. So yeah. um, often comes up as, well, as what sort of a, a legacy one that a lot of people will talk about how how well that was put together. And I know Madrid have bid, I think, about four times since Barcelona and never get it. But um, I think Barcelona will be a popular choice. Will you, do you think you'll head over to LA in in sort of uh, five years to check out some of the some of the events? I do. I do. I mean, it's so it's too close to miss, you know. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I think I, I think. I will. And then back to Australia for Brisbane 2032. You can come and sort of uh, check out city a little bit north of Sydney. Brisbane's a great city as well. So, uh, yeah, I've heard like wonderful things about Brisbane. So, yeah, always invitation. Definitely, definitely have in oh, your spare you. in your spare time. What is the one thing you most like to do? Uh, um. I like to go to the movies. Ah, I love the movies. Um, it's just, it's, it's like kind of, it's, I have two kids now. They're five and a half, almost six and eight and a half. And, and to put it, you know, lightly, they are exhausting. <laughs> And um, the movies is like a great place to go to like be able to kind of check out, you know. <laughs> you know, is this is this movies, Aaron time, Aaron and husband time, or is this bring the kids to see Despicable Me Seven or whatever they're up to now? Like, I mean, or is it uh, a balance? <laughs> I would prefer for it to just be Aaron time and husband time, <laughs> uh, but if I need a break and I can't do that, I'm absolutely willing to take my kids just to. You know. Eat your popcorn, watch the movie. That that's that's enough. Right. That's, that's all. That's all right. you need. What is the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you? Oh, um, always interesting. This one. I feel like we need some yeah. Jeopardy music here right now. This is uh... I know. Um... <laughs> We can come back to it I'm if you sure like. Um, yeah, let's come back to we'll it because I'm sure there's some weird stuff, but I just don't know right now. We'll, we'll come back. Your favorite workout, uh, I guess, was. I mean, if you're still working out, I mean, your favorite workout is slash was. Yeah. So um, I just recently started um, training for uh, a triathlon. I started triathlon training last year. And so I would say um, cycling I love and I've, I've developed this love for like swimming. Mm. Um, and then I would also say F45, which oh. I feel like you guys know what that yeah, is. Yeah. Because didn't it start? Okay. I think it might've started here, but uh, no, it's very, very popular here. So uh, yes, that's Mark, Mark Wahlberg started that. Did he not? Was that, a, was Mark, was that Mr. Marky Mark? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. It was. You're right. It was. And then, then the, the whole family's got the Wahlbergers chain as well. Like the, the Wahlbergs are taking over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's become extremely popular here yeah, in the US. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Um your favorite sandwich is um peanut butter. You can answer it. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a great one. Crunchy or smooth? Crunchy or smooth? Smooth and lots of peanut butter. Okay. Lots just, of peanut. Butter. I'm I'm yeah. one of these people who I think like it's kind of like cat and dog, right? Like, yeah, you can have a preference, but you can still like the other. But I'm always more of a smooth than a crunchy man. And I feel I get talked down on. So I'm glad that there's there's more smooth people out there, Aaron. I, yes, I think that that's 
accurate. Yeah. yeah. But I do like, I do like nuts. So mm. good answer. Yeah. Good answer. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I would fly. Mm. That's easy. Yeah. I would fly because I just think how cool would that be to be able to like, you know, rise up and fly over everything and watch it. I just think it's such a cool feeling. Pretty fun. And also I used to like love roller coasters and stuff, you know, exactly. Exactly. Just go crazy. And you're not going to really run into too much stuff unless you're just, you know, running. Yeah. Don't do that. Um, the the best candy in the world is. I think this depends on whether I'm in a savory or a sweet mood. Mm. Um, because I love things like um, like Sour Patch Kids. Mm-hmm. If I need like some, um, if it's if I'm like really wanting something sour. Yep. Um, but sweet, I would say um, like dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate. Good answer. I like dark chocolate too. Get needs yeah. more love. I like that. Uh, as a yeah. kid, your favorite sports team was the Dallas Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks. Nice. Still follow them. Still, still in the well, Mavericks train. Oh yeah, we, we still we still have uh, season tickets. To Great. The Fantastic. Yeah. Nice. I yeah. like that. Uh, your favorite sports movie is. Ooh, um, Rudy, maybe? Yeah, yeah, okay, yep. I just, I love the, like, underdog, the little, the, the guy that no one ever thought would do it, and just how important those guys are to the team. Yeah, absolutely. Is it? I always love asking this question then to see if we can work out, is there a high jump movie or a movie with high jumping in it, a documentary? Like, is there something out there that kind of connects? Because I always like to go to the James Bond route. Has James Bond done your sport? And I can't think of James Bond doing high jump, sadly. No, I, you know, I think that there have been movies, albeit like real cheesy movies that have had a high jumper in them, Mm -hmm. but I don't think there's been any movie about hardly any movies about track and field in general, other than like Prefontaine, but that's like running. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because you think like of all the sports, like, I mean, that's just your classic Olympic sport. It's track and field. Like right? there should be more, like shouldn't the there? the very first yeah. sport ever, right? What's the one sport that any human being on this planet can do in some form or another? It's track and field, you know? Yeah, so, exactly. Like, we can all run and yeah. walk and... Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I think that it's very interesting that there's not more out there. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I, I, I'll go to this one because uh, actually we'll come back. Have you coached anything on the coach yet? We can scrap it. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I mean, I feel like everything I was told to do from a coach was something that I could see why they were telling me to do that. Like I could make something of it. Um, and I know that like right after this podcast, I'm going to hang up and be like, <laughs> Oh, it was that, you know, send it in. We'll um, put it up there. I can, I okay, can. I, I'll send it in. But I mean, most of the time, even if it was super crazy, I could be like, okay, well I can see why. You're send happy. it with your drawing, the picture of yourself. There you go. I've already drawn. Oh, what's drew- this? this is a, this is a, Oh, look at that. Oh, it's a horse. I like a it. Horse. Can you, I, I need and you. To, I- oh, she's done more here. This is amazing. Pretty good drawings too for our video, but wow. Uh, that, yeah, I see it. Oh, look at that. All the rings on that with an L8. Erin, oh, you need to take a photo of that and we'll share it on our social media. But for our video people watching that right now, those are incredible. 2028. This is the this is for London. Uh, for LA, you mean? L- LA, I mean. LA? LA. There Sorry. you go. Beautiful. LA. Yeah. LA 2028. 
Beautiful. Yeah. There you go. Our first time we've ever had someone doing it live. So Aaron will take a photo of that and we'll put it on social media, but our video people saw that. Great. I mean, competitive, right? But so this, you this is a thing. That. But this is what I like about that, Aaron, because you think everybody on this show would have that being an Olympian. But And you I, are actually, you are, congratulations, you are the very first summer athlete to have ever drawn for us. It's only ever been winter athletes. So congratulations. Wow. Thank you. I take great pride in being the first there of anything. There you go. Now we're going to set the bar high and we're going to get so competitive <laughs> yes. with all of these. We'll make it compulsory. Rather than me sitting here going like, oh, it's optional. I'll be like, no, it's compulsory. You have to draw on this show. It's Exactly. And it makes it even harder to actually draw something that's legibly <laughs> legible when you're trying to answer questions at the same time. Trust me. I know. Hey, look at this. Skilled on many. This is why you're a multi-sport athlete because you're capable of doing Exactly. It works yep. that way. Yep. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Ooh. Um, I would, Australia is one of them, I think, or I would go back to Italy. Great answer. I lived there for four years and I, I loved it. I mean, I've considered taking my family back over there, but um, we've got a couple friends that are considering moving to Australia and I don't blame them. Um, and then I would say Italy. So Italy and Australia. Well, you got plenty of time, I think. Well, I mean, Italy, you could get there. If you went there soon, there's an Olympics in 2026 in the winter variety. And then you've, of course, now got, what, nine years before Brisbane. So you could sort of correlate it around Olympics, you know, just, yeah. just be yes. able to travel around. They're just putting ideas out there, Erin. You're welcome. Last question. Good. I love this question because you can interpret this however you want. When you were little... What was one thing you always thought? That I would be an Olympic athlete. Be an Olympic athlete. I thought you were going to go that way. I like that. Yeah. And that's the first thing that came to my mind and it's probably the truth. I love, I love <laughs> this answer here. So I'm, I'm basing this on a questionnaire that was given to a Canadian track and field athlete by the name of Kimberly Hyacinth. And her answer for this one was one thing she always thought when she was little, that Jafar was the meanest person ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously an Aladdin fan, so... Um, That's amazing. I mean, is that like... Um, is it the first thing you're supposed to think of? Or? And look, I, I, the answer to that one, I had uh, somebody answered that they were always hungry was one thing they always thought when they were little. Okay. So, again, that's what you can interpret, okay. like... I like the competitive nature of I wanted to be an Olympian, but again, you could be like, well, I was yeah. always hungry when I was a kid, so that's what I always thought. Like, you can you can answer that however you want. I think I think if I if if I think about it a little bit, like the other thing I think is that one thing you think when you're a little kid is that the world is full of good people mm. and that the world is such a great place and everything's happy and wonderful and then you grow and you learn a little bit too much and you have some experiences and so, you know, it just makes you want to go back to being a kid. Yes, yeah, good where, times, wasn't it? We, when we didn't have to adult. When you, just, you didn't have to adult and you didn't have to worry about world problems. Yep. No, you know? I, I agree. We all we all need to have that Everybody mindset. Everybody get along. Yes, we all exactly. Need to get along. I feel like we need to start singing Heal the World right now or something, Aaron. Like it's just... Uh, <laughs> Make it a better place <laughs> for you. For you and for me and the entire human race. Wow. This is drawing, we've had singing. Du I mean, duet? Jeez, this is the first time I've ever duetted with an Olympian. I mean, what else can nice. we achieve on here, Aaron? This is, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, we touched on the website, but social media, anywhere else people can follow your journey right now. Aaron, plug away. Feel free to let people know where they can check you out. Yeah. Um, Instagram at 
at Ascension Coaching. Um, and then Facebook, I think it's Ascension Coaching One. Um, LinkedIn, Ascension Coaching. So yeah, I've got, uh, I have um, accounts on all of those. So search Ascension Coaching. Ascension Coaching. And for those watching on the video, you can see it literally above her shoulder there. So uh, that that obviously works well. Erin, this has been a lot of fun to go over your your journey and everything else with your career. So fascinating to learn and get insights from you. Best of luck with the coaching and everything else. And come down to Australia, bring the family, and uh, we'll we'll take over. We'll commentate the athletics for uh, Brisbane 2032. We'll, We'll line up in the Gabba right now and we'll take over for it. How does that sound? Let's do it. Maybe we can sing a duet. Hey, as we can be the opening ceremony. We can be the opening act. Yeah. Oh, are you kidding me? Let's do it. Done. <laughs> and a massive, massive thanks to Erin for her time there and also to her management, Caroline, for organizing that one. Fascinating, fascinating insight really into just what it takes to become a two-sport athlete and reaching the pinnacle, essentially, of both. And now, obviously, she didn't quite get into that Olympic team in Athens, but she's an alternate, so essentially you can make it as high as you can in that mountain without obviously stepping foot on the mat there in Athens. But just all the insights of everything that came with the progression through high jump, the fact that literally a coach has basically said to her, you, high jump, off you pop, and then she becomes an Olympian in that sport as well. And just the the mindset that is involved in transitioning between individual and team sport as well. Because as we learn, it's not generally a sport that you think, well, high jump's going to come from volleyball. And obviously to connect those dots there with the jumping ability in those. So very, very fascinating to learn all of that insight. And we very much thank Erin for her time. And I will say, as you heard us in that chat, of course, check out the video version on our YouTube page now because... She draws those pictures legitimately while we are there going through that conversation. Of course, we post them on our social media if you haven't already checked those out. But she was drawing those as I was asking those questions. So you will see her hold those up in the interview as you would have heard here in the audio version. So a uh, bit of fun there. It's our first time we've ever had an athlete actually draw them as we go along. So thanks again to Erin for her time and a massive amount of fun to be able to have that chat. And while you're on our YouTube channel as well, of course, plenty of other video interviews. We can't keep harping on enough about our Johnny Weir interview last week. You can check that full interview out on our YouTube channel as well as our past interviews on there as well and a bit of other fun content on our YouTube channel. And subscribe on all of our other relevant social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, X. Sorry, that's Twitter. It's the same thing, isn't it? Um, Threads, TikTok, you name it, we're on there. Coming soon to MySpace, probably, who knows? So uh, get involved there and subscribe to the pod while you're out there. Hit up Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We're on all of them. Search for Off the Podium. And we'd love to hear your feedback. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. We've got a busy couple of weeks coming up on the show. We're going to take a little bit of a break from some interviews because we're getting into what we love doing on this show outside of the interviews, and that's covering big events. Now, this year, of course, we covered a Women's World Cup. That was pretty exciting. Last year, we covered Commonwealth Games, a Men's World Cup. We covered a Winter Olympics. Next year, we've got a Youth Olympics. We've got a Full Olympics, all that. But now we're going to cover our very first ever Pan Am Games. Of course, Erin is a Pan Am bronze medalist in the sport of volleyball. And a lot of our guests on this show are going to be competing in Santiago, Chile for the next month. Uh, well, the next couple of weeks, honestly. But uh, we're basically going to be covering it essentially over the, the next month or so. And this is Colin's bread and butter. This is Colin driving the ship. He will be hosting the next couple of weeks and very, very excited because, again, 
how Jared and I are going to watch these, we don't know. So it's going to be a bit of fun, a bit of uh, interesting content that we've got coming. So over the next four weeks, you'll hear some coverage of the 2023 Pan American Games. And if you're sitting here going, Ben, I don't know what the Pan Am Games are. Think of it as the Olympics, but purely for North and South American countries. So essentially in that region, the Americas, so pretty much everywhere from Canada at the top all the way down to Chile in the very bottom. That's essentially what we're going to be looking at there. All those countries compete over a couple of weeks. Majority of them are Olympic sports, but there are non-Olympic sports that we don't really get to talk about, and they will be involved there as well. So this is Colin's chance for Canada to shine, for Canada to come out on top. There's no Australia to compete with here, so we're purely going to be mainly focusing on Canada, but obviously there's America involved in there as well, Mexico, Brazil, all these other countries in the region that we'll be talking about. As I said, several guests that have appeared on this show will be competing in those Pan Am games, we'll be obviously paying a little bit of attention to them as well. But a bit of fun. We thought, why not give it a try? The Pan Ams are great, so let's give it a bit of a focus. So that will be happening over the coming couple of weeks. And after that, we'll get straight back into some interviews as we close out towards the end of the year as well. And then 2024, it's Olympic year. We've got the Olympics. Paris Olympics are happening, of course, next year, getting ever closer. And we will also be covering the Youth Olympics, the Winter Youth Olympics, that happening at the end of January as well. So stay tuned for that. But so much to come in 2024 on Off the Podium as we get ready to close out 2023 in style. It's been a massive year, as it always is on the show. And we very much enjoy this journey that we have been on with you and you joining us as well. We appreciate all the support along the way. Shout out to Erin again. Thank you so much for her joining us on the show. Shout out to the Birmingham Ball, to Jason Momoa. You took the words right out of my mouth. Put a sock in it out and all the usual stuff. My name is Ben. Thank you for tuning in to Off the Podium. And remember to go left. Go left.